and welcome to the first episode of the campaign trail. The campaign trail is basically going to be a new podcast slash show we're going to be doing that's going to be going over one important presidential campaign a week. So we're going to be um, basically going through some of the most important presidential campaigns in American history. And we're going to talk about the campaign from the background that started with the administration preceding that campaign all the way through through the primaries, VP selection, the general election campaign, the results, and in the case of today's episode, the aftermath, what it meant for the nation and how it might affect future elections and why uh, it ends up being remembered as an important election. Uh, so we have a few seasons of the show planned. The first season goes all the way through November uh, up until December, and we're going to be covering six elections in that time. This week, we're starting with 2000. So we really appreciate all the viewership here. I, I know we have quite a lot of viewership for a show that was made on short notice. So we thank you guys for being here tonight. The panel is going to be me. I'm going to be basically uh, the narrator here. This is going to function almost kind of like a documentary with some commentary as we go through to remember the biggest parts of the 2000 election. Um, and we're going to have Eric chiming in as well. And Andrew Payne is also going to be joining us later. And they'll be providing insights as we go through this. So... We hope you enjoyed this episode, and this should give you a little gist of what it's about. This is basically what we're going to do for every campaign, so we hope you stick with us. All right, so the 2000 election is widely remembered today for its intensity, for the intensity of the campaign, for the rhetoric that was thrown around within the campaign, and obviously it's remembered most of all for its outcome, particularly um, the way in which the election played out after election night. And it's remembered for its competitiveness, particularly in Florida, and for the landmark Supreme Court decision, Bush v. Gore, that ultimately followed it. It's also important to uh, remember, as we'll talk about later in this episode, that it was the first election where the winner of the electoral vote did not win the popular vote, or yeah, did not win the popular vote in well over 100 years. Before 2000, 1888 was the last election where that occurred. Uh, so we'll get started now. Mm -hmm. So basically setting the stage for the 2000 election was obviously the latter half of President Bill Clinton's second term. Uh, as you guys all know, Bill Clinton was a two-term Democratic president from January 1993 to January 2001. He had been re-elected in 1996 over Kansas Senator Bob Dole, and he had remained fairly popular throughout his second term. In fact, he grew even more popular throughout the impeachment process, something that's fascinating to look at and how it could have impacted the 2000 election. Um, so President Bill Clinton was impeached by the House by a 258 to 176 vote uh, on October 8th, 1998. Uh, the House basically gave its reasoning as high crimes and misdemeanors, um, and there, that was elaborated on in four articles of impeachment. The first article pertained to perjury surrounding Bill Clinton's comments about his relationship with Monica Lewinsky in front of a grand jury. Uh, the House ultimately agreed to that article of impeachment. The second article was perjury relating to the Paula Jones case, another woman uh, who claimed that Bill Clinton sexually assaulted her in Arkansas and Lewinsky and Clinton, or I should say by extension Clinton, was involved in that, um, that case. The House did not agree to the perjury uh, charge on that article of impeachment. And then the second article the House did agree to was Article 3, uh, and they agreed that Bill Clinton obstructed justice. They did not agree to the abuse of power article, Article 4, and that was actually the most lopsided defeat. You had very few Republicans actually end up supporting that. Uh, overall, you did have about 30 Democrats 
support the Bill Clinton impeachment. There were Democrats that supported each article. One Democrat even managed to support the abuse of power article. I think that was Virgil Good of Virginia, who later became a Republican, if I remember correctly. But just for the sake of time, we'll go over basically the uh, issues surrounding the impeachment. So as most of you know, Bill Clinton did have a sexual relationship uh, with Monica Lewinsky well uh, in a marriage and well as president. And the reason why that was such a big issue was because he had gone before a grand jury and essentially said that he famously did not have sexual relations with that woman. And that backfired on him and led to that first article of impeachment on perjury there. And the investigations into the Clinton administration that were the synthesis of this impeachment process they actually didn't begin with the sexual assault stuff or the, I guess you could say sexual assault for Paula Jones and sexual relationship that was consensual with Lewinsky. It actually started with the Ken Starr report that was investigating the Whitewater scandal, which plagued the Clinton administration at the beginning of the administration. And he was also investigating the firing of White House staffers, uh, as well as the misuse of FBI documents. Um, now, after um, the Paula Jones case came into play here in this impeachment process, what you saw was you saw uh, Janet Reno, the attorney general, give Ken Starr, who is a private investigator, the uh, essentially the ability to bring the two cases into the fold of his impeachment process or his, his impeachment investigation. And after that, it went to the House where there was compelling enough evidence for the House to actually skip judiciary hearing investigations. Um, so ultimately, they did impeach the president. President Bill Clinton was impeached. Uh, and we would wait a few decades until Trump's impeachment to see another impeachment. But a lot like Trump, Bill Clinton was acquitted by the Senate. Uh, as you guys know, in the Constitution, there's a simple majority required to impeach a president in the House. And that's essentially a declaration of a crime that that president has committed. It does not have any sway in terms of removing them from office. And then it goes to the Senate, where the trial is overseen by the Chief Justice. And, of course, you need two-thirds there, which is 67 votes. And that's very difficult now Um in fact, even back uh, when Andrew Johnson was impeached, the Senate failed to remove him from office by one vote. Uh, and it was a smaller chamber back then. So uh, 55-45 was the vote to acquit Bill Clinton. So obviously 45 votes far short of 67. So Clinton was out. Eric, do you have any comments about the Clinton impeachment uh, or, or anything you'd like to add? Yeah, I think in hindsight, it's pretty clearly a, a blunder in terms of, of it backfiring. It really probably got rid of several Republican office holders. 1998 turned out to be really kind of a good election for a midterm, which is really unusual, not just for any midterm, but especially for a sixth year midterm for, for the, the, for like basically the middle election in the second half of a presidency. That's really uncommon. Um, voters may not have liked what Bill Clinton had done, but they clearly didn't feel that this was enough to warrant impeachment. And it really ultimately kept Bill Clinton popular throughout the end of his presidency, which in that regard, is basically the exact opposite of what Republicans have been going into this thing wanting. Obviously, they wanted to remove him, but at minimum, they hoped this would end. You know, uh, the you know the first impeachment in a century would would you know change some votes, and clearly it did, but just the other way because um, this did not go the way they had thought it would. Yeah, and actually, to add to your point, as we're just going to get to uh, one of the big questions surrounding Bill Clinton's administration during the impeachment was how did his approval rating fluctuate? And you may think, well, uh, impeachment, he must have done something very wrong. The American people are probably going to side with the House against him. Well, in this case, they didn't side with Newt Gingrich and the congressional Republicans. Uh, according to reliable polling firms like Gallup Poll, they actually overwhelmingly sided with the president. And during the impeachment process, Bill Clinton's approval rating essentially skyrocketed. Uh, in 1999, just uh, at the beginning of the year following the impeachment in October, Bill Clinton's approval was at 73 percent. 
you know, those numbers are very uncommon. You typically don't see presidents getting higher than that, uh, barring some exceptions like Bush Sr. during the Persian Gulf War and Bush Jr. after 9-11. So 73%, very impressive. And even when uh, Clinton was leaving office in 2001, after the completion of the 2000 campaign, he had a 65% approval rating, according to Gallup. Mm -hmm. So and that is, yeah. obviously harmed the Republicans in the 98 midterms. They lost seats in the House. Uh, definitely didn't work like Gingrich had thought. And Gingrich actually, due to a corruption scandal, ended up just ending his tenure as Speaker and was replaced by Dennis Hastert shortly after. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this really shouldn't have been surprising in hindsight going into this stuff. A lot of these sorts of allegations have been litigated before, before like in the 1996 elections, 94. And Bill Clinton came out of the 96 election with a 10-point popular vote win. I mean, that almost a 10-point win. That's the largest margin we've had since 1984. And obviously, he didn't get over 50% of the vote, but that was because of Perot. I mean, he won states that today are unthinkable for a Democratic candidate to win. So the, the idea that this is going to impact things really, um, I mean, just in hindsight, it comes off as a mistake. And it's really evident in the polling because those numbers – 73% over 60% is surprisingly good today. I mean, Obama started his term over 60% approval. Like that was what he came into office with. Um, and that slowly declined. We haven't seen that number since. Uh, it's mm -hmm. really just unprecedented that, that, that just in, the, in my lifetime, there was a time when a president had that in peacetime with no, with, I mean, they're in the midst of a scandal, a legitimate scandal. Yeah. And, uh, you know, another thing we can look at to kind of quantify Clinton's popularity was how was the country doing? How was the country doing during the impeachment? Because, you know, there was a rally around the flag effect for President Clinton. But, you know, there was some good reasoning behind that for a strong public popularity, because whether or not you're a Republican or a Democrat, uh, you can admit that some of the economic indicators, most of the economic indicators indicated a fairly strong environment. Uh, Clinton oversaw pretty robust economic growth during his tenure. There was around 4% annual growth. And uh, during his entire tenure as president, there was record job creation. He actually oversaw the creation. I wouldn't say directly, but um, under his watch, 23 million new jobs were created. So you saw a very steady decline in the unemployment rate. And I'll actually put up a uh, graph here. This is the Clinton economic panel. So the only category that wasn't looking good for Clinton during his presidency was GDP growth. GDP growth was somewhat unsteady up until 2000, and it started going down at the end. But what most of the American people saw and cared about and why Clinton was so popular, um, and this was an issue in the 2000 campaign, was a, overall a good economy. Inflation rates went down um, and unemployment went down. This is probably the most stark graph you can see. If the unemployment, you can see mm -hmm. there right around the 92 campaign where the economy sank President Bush. By the time of the 2000 campaign, unemployment had uh, done essentially a sharp decline, you know, if you look at the overall curve mm -hmm. And yeah, that was and, and those, yeah, them as well. And obviously, if most people are going to associate that with a president like that, so the rally around the flag mm -hmm. effect does make some sense. Yeah, and towards the end of that term, I mean, you're, you're talking about the economic indicators. There, a lot of that was because mainly of the dot com bubble, which was just yeah. just a, a nature of the fact of tech growth. You had some other stuff. I know my area at the time had basically went from a boom to bust economy with manufacturing, furniture, and and textiles, but those were all fairly limited sorts of things that they mm -hmm. didn't impact. The, the larger consciousness as much as modern recessions. I think it was generally understood that the dot-com bubble was a correction that was bound to happen. I mean, you had pets.com, you had uh, all sorts of other bizarre websites that were doomed to fail. And that was just part of the correction of that cycle. So I don't think a lot of people took that out on Clinton personally. Uh, it certainly didn't come out of oh, the building yeah. in 2000. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, and a lot of voters did credit Clinton for the economy, and that happens with popular presidents. If there's a popular president mm -hmm. that is has relatively bipartisan approval and there's a good economy, uh, a lot of times voters will really commend that president for that. And vice versa, if the economy is bad, the president will often be sunk in his reelection bid for that mm -hmm. purpose. And, you know, it's just something voters do. Overall, the president doesn't quite have as much of an impact on the economy as they like to tout during the campaign season. But when we look at it from the voters' perspective, it is an important issue, and that's why I wanted to bring it up. But real quick, since uh, we're moving on now, the 2000 election. So 2000 is one of those years, uh, and we've seen this throughout presidential history, where you've got, uh, in this case, a vice president trying to hold the White House for their party after two full terms or eight years of one-party rule in Washington. And oftentimes that's a difficult task. More often than not, candidates who have been running to hold the White House for their party when there's already been uh, eight years of that party's rule in Washington typically don't succeed. Now, I'll start with the exceptions. There are two exceptions here. One of them is pretty extreme. In 1948, uh, as you guys know, President Truman, uh, who started off as a senator from Missouri before he was appointed to uh, be the last vice president for uh, Franklin Roosevelt, uh, as you guys know, he assumed the office uh, of president after FDR died in 1945 after winning re-election to his fourth term in office, obviously unprecedented. So, um, he had completed, if you look at his four, he had completed three terms. He didn't really get to start his uh, fourth term because he unfortunately passed away at the beginning of it. But Truman had his first three years in office uh, from 1945 to the 1948 campaign. And uh, he was widely considered an underdog. You know, that was seemingly the Republicans' year. The 1940 and 44 elections had been closer for Republicans than the mm -hmm. blowouts in, 20, in uh, 32 and 36. And uh, in fact, their candidate, New York Governor Thomas Dewey, was young, appealing, handsome, and he was actually the guy who had run in 1944. So he thought it was the year. The journalists thought it was the year. The polling thought it was the year at the time. In fact, I mean, there's a famous anecdote where, you know, the, the newspapers all printed essentially that Dewey had won the election. And there's the famous picture of uh, Harry Truman holding up the newspaper saying, Dewey defeats Truman after he had won the election. And he actually won the uh, Electoral College by a pretty decent margin. You know, he had a wide margin victory. It wasn't incredibly close in the Electoral College. So that's one. He won that term. And um, after him, two years of Eisenhower. So that's one exception, or two terms of Eisenhower. So that's the first exception. The second exception is um, 1988. And that was after two terms of President Reagan. And initially, uh, you know, the economy had dipped a little bit in 1987, which had kind of stunted some of the perception of Reagan, especially in the Rust Belt, working class job growth had had shrunk a little bit at the end of Reagan's term, kind of reminiscent of where it was in 1982 when he had that mini recession before the economy rebounded. And uh, there was also the Iran-Contra scandal, which, uh, you know, Dan Rather would stress very highly, particularly in that media interview against uh, George Bush, his vice president. Uh, who ultimately ended up winning the election. So initially, Mike Dukakis that year, the challenger, looked pretty much poised to win the presidency. He was leading in the polls, um, but we can. Uh, I like to attribute a few uh, things to Bush's victory in that election against Dukakis. One of them is definitely Lee Atwater. Whether or not you like Lee Atwater, and I admit he did often use race-baiting tactics, particularly with that Willie Horton ad, he was very effective at turning voters against Dukakis. The two most prominent ads from him in that election, the revolving door ad with Willie Horton criticizing a policy that Dukakis had uh, done as Massachusetts governor about revolving prison doors, and um, also criticism. There was another ad criticizing Massachusetts Bay, calling it incredibly 
dirty at Boston Harbor. And they were basically trying to portray Dukakis as a hypocrite because he was pushing very hardly for strong environmental standards nationally. And they were saying, how can you do that when you can't even control your own state? I know it's cliche, but the other things that people remember from this campaign, the bad opening debate performance for Dukakis, uh, as you guys probably know, Dukakis was asked by uh, Bernard Shaw of CNN, basically. He was asked, would he support the death penalty if uh, someone murdered his wife? And he said no. Uh, and I think that just came off as pretty cold to most Americans, especially uh, even though there had been rising uh, dissatisfaction with the death penalty. I mean, when you look at cases like Greg v. Georgia, which actually reinstated the death penalty for Furman mm -hmm. v. Georgia, uh, you know, you had, you had approval polling showing the death penalty certainly declining in popularity, but that still seemed cold. And finally, uh, this really ended up pretty much allowing Bush to retake the lead in the polls. It was a Dukakis tank gaffe. Uh, which then again, the Bush ad team essentially spun backwards to make Dukakis look effectively like a clown who didn't really know how to handle military affairs. And that contrasted mm -hmm. against Bush Sr.'s record as a war hero who had been shot down in World War II. So they kind of blew that election. And for the uh, sake of time, I'll use the last three minutes to talk about examples of the trend we're talking about. So instances in which someone, oftentimes a vice president, was running to maintain the White House for their party, even after that party had held the White House for two terms prior. 1960 is a good example, a very close contested election, probably one of the most, uh, if not the most important presidential campaigns of the 20th century. We're gonna be talking about that race later this season, uh, but Vice President Nixon, who had served under Eisenhower for two years, ended up losing to John F. Kennedy. It wasn't particularly close in the electoral vote. Kennedy took over 300 electoral votes, but it's remembered for being incredibly close in the popular vote, one of the closest mm -hmm. in American history. Uh, in 1968, the White House flipped again. Obviously, uh, Kennedy was unfortunately assassinated in 1963. And from 1963 to 1969, LBJ was president. He was reelected in 64. He tried to run again in 1968, but he pulled out after a poor primary showing in response to the growing discontent within the Democratic Party about the Vietnam War that was propelling candidates like, um, for example, um, prominently Robert Kennedy before his assassination. Um, and um, the 1968 race ended up being between Vice President Hubert Humphrey, who kind of had the nomination handed to him, uh, really the last convention where the convention really mattered. Basically, the party bosses selected him as a nominee, even though he had no popular support. Uh, and he lost to Richard Nixon. So White House flips again. In 76, you've got, at that point, eight full years of Republican rule. And you would have had the Watergate scandal in 1974. 74 midterms were brutal for Republicans and uh, Jimmy Carter won. In 2000, as you'll find out if you don't already know, Al Gore did lose despite winning the popular vote. And I'm not gonna spend time on that because that's basically the rest of the uh, hour of this episode. Um, in 2008, John McCain, poor economy, blamed for the unpopularity of Bush Jr. at that point, lost in a landslide to Obama who kind of ushered in a message of generational change and was kind of one of those candidates that is uh, someone you don't see very often. And that's gonna be another election we talk about actually next season. Because obviously, since Obama was the first African-American president elected and the uh, really generational change in the results of that election um, are both two driving factors that are very important to its consideration there as an important mm -hmm. campaign. And 2016, another one we'll be talking about uh, as an important campaign. Similar to 2000, both Clinton and Gore won the popular vote but lost the Electoral College. But obviously, that resulted in President Trump winning. So, Eric, we have about one minute before we move on to the actual meat and potatoes of this election campaign. Do you have anything to add? 
Uh, no, I think that's I think that's a pretty good overview of the situation. I mean, there's a lot of factors going on, and there's definitely some stuff I want to go over in discussing this election because it truly was an interesting. Um, it, I, I consider this a realignment election. I think this is pretty clearly a realignment election in a lot of ways, and this is something where you can see some vestiges of party support that had kind of hung on for a while, ultimately kind of vanish and fade away. Um, and part of that does does come from this underdog campaign. Obviously, you know. 500,000 votes isn't a whole ton, but it is it is one of the rare elections where a candidate did lose the popular vote. If you go by the total, I believe this is the fourth out of five. I don't consider one of, I, I would consider it the third out of four because one of those elections I think was illegitimate in the 1800s. Yeah, but I don't. It's very rare. It's unprecedented. It's a different scenario because in 1824, yeah. no one got an electoral majority yeah. at all. Well, also, I believe the one that was the Tilden, um, the election Tilden was in, yes, where yes, technically one. more popular vote, but also, black voters were disenfranchised in the entire South for the first time. So I really don't consider that to be to be a scenario. But this is definitely the first time in modern history that this happened. Yeah. And I think it caused a lot of eyebrows to be raised about the Electoral College that previously hadn't really existed. Well, yeah, I mean, it was the uh, it didn't happen at all during the 20th century. Mm -hmm. The last time it had happened prior to this was uh, over 110 years in 1880. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, obviously not something that happened in the uh, in the modern era with this much turnout and full voting rights for women and minorities as mm -hmm. well. Yes. So, really so unprecedented. Yeah. So we're going to just welcome Andrew onto here. He's going to stay with us to discuss and perfect mm -hmm. just in time as we get into the actual campaign. OK, so we're going to be starting talking about the uh, Democratic primary. So uh, like many before him who had been running to maintain the White House after eight years of uh, rule under the president they worked for, Vice President Al Gore was the favorite to win the Democratic nomination. And he ultimately did. And he maintained that favorite status throughout the campaign uh, or throughout the primary campaign, I should note. So he was considered kind of an heir to President Bill Clinton. But as, as we've talked about before, his campaign, and he embraced this strategy, decided that even though Clinton was very popular and the economy was good, that um, they would they would be more immune to Republican general election attacks if he distanced himself from Bill Clinton. And there are some theorists, and we'll get into this later, who argue that that actually ended up harming him. They talk about that in the 2000 Crystal Ball book, uh, how he may have lost core support from some of the core Clinton base by distancing himself too much from Clinton, and that he seemed hypocritical for mm -hmm. taking... Uh, credit for the solid economy and other Clinton administration hallmarks while simultaneously distancing himself from his boss and colleague that he had energetically supported four years earlier. Um, so um, he was challenged in this election in the primary campaign by a New Jersey Senator Bill Bradley, who was known as a liberal Democrat, who was very, very much devoted to his causes. He was very tenacious about issues relating to health care uh, issues relating to general welfare of the United States. And he was definitely the more progressive candidate in this election. And that might be part of the reason why you can see him doing decidedly better in primary contests in New England, uh, whereas Gore was known as the more centrist Democrat from the South. He was a senator from Tennessee, as you guys know, before he was selected as uh, VP in 92. And that was actually interesting because normally they would try and balance the Democratic ticket. That year they had two Southerners on the Democratic ticket. Um, and Bradley was a popular guy. He was a basketball star at Princeton University. And uh, after that, he took his spot in the Senate. Uh, a little bit of trivia. Uh, when he won in 1978, New Jersey hasn't elected a Republican senator since 19, uh, 1972. So uh, that seat flipped in 78 and he's held it or he <laughs> held it uh, for decades. Uh, he was famous for closing tax loopholes in the 1986 tax reform bill. Uh, which he touted in this campaign as well. 
And uh, overall, basically what you need to know about Bradley, he didn't have a particularly large amount of momentum because Gore was essentially the establishment pick mm -hmm. that year. But he did, and similar to McCain in the Republican primary, he did manage to tighten the polls uh, by a couple points and um, get up to about 30, 33% of the vote going into the primary campaign. So talking a little bit about that primary. So it started off kind of competitive, at least a little bit for Bradley, even though Gore was the decided favorite in the poll. He often had double-digit leads in national polls. So um, the Iowa caucus, um, Bradley actually picked up the support of the Des Moines Register newspaper, quite an important endorsement in that Iowa caucus, and he managed to take 37% of the caucus vote, which, given his national polling lead, was actually pretty good, 37%. And he came even closer in the New Hampshire primary, the next contest. And... Um, he actually only lost that by 4.2 points. He did very, very well in New Hampshire. And uh, he did very, very well throughout New England. He got 42% of the vote in Connecticut, 41% of the vote in Maine, uh, 37 in Massachusetts, 40 in Rhode Island, 44 in Vermont. You know, New England was definitely his stronger region. Um, and he was, that, they, some argue, I've argued, uh, read that in the uh, 2000 Crystal Ball book about 2000, that they uh, basically attributed that to his more liberal persuasion as a candidate there. Mm -hmm. uh, and his policies were more appealing to New England Democrats. And it was kind of similar to John McCain in the Republican primary. The uh, libertarian conservative vibe of New England really mixed well with John McCain's straight talk campaign style. And uh, that's why he did better in New England. Obviously, he had that breakout win in New Hampshire we're going to discuss later that helped start off his campaign and uh, make him a formidable challenger to Bush in that primary. <laughs> so um, unfortunately for Bradley, he did not perform very well outside of the Northeast. And uh, his momentum quickly dried up despite very good fundraising numbers. And that effectively led to him dropping out of the race. And that gave Gore the nomination. Um, on the Republican side... Uh, Bush also started off as a pretty strong front runner, um, and uh, he had pretty strong polling leads as well, a lot like Al Gore in his primary campaign. Um, similarly, uh, just like Bill Bradley did well in New Hampshire, John McCain did very well in New Hampshire and actually won the state by 18 points. Uh, this kind of launched him into dark horse status among the media as a potential candidate to beat Bush, who had been the Republican front runner, obviously the pres former president's son. His father still had a lot of influence in the Republican Party, uh, and he was the governor of Texas prior to this campaign. Uh, McCain was the U.S. senator from Arizona. And I've talked about this previously, and I'll ask you guys real quick when we're done discussing the primaries. But the uh, libertarian conservatism of New Hampshire specifically seemed like a perfect melting pot for John McCain's ideology to really play out on the Republican electorate there. I mean, he was famously remembered for driving around in the Straight Talk Express bus and talking to voters seeming much more personable than Bush. And uh, it ended up working against both the front runners in both primaries. Uh, Gore underperformed in New Hampshire and Bush lost it by a way larger margin than anyone would have expected, mm -hmm. 18 points. And um, that gave McCain some added momentum. The big turn back in favor of Bush came in the South Carolina result. Um, and Bush wasn't directly involved, but um, it states this in the Wikipedia article about the campaign in the Republican primary as well. But the South Carolina, there were some Republican organizations, mainly people campaigning and supporting Bush, even though they weren't affiliated with this campaign. Uh, they were essentially using race baiting tactics to try and um, energize conservative voters against McCain because there was a strong portion of the Republican electorate that viewed McCain as insufficiently conservative. 
And one of the rumors included false accusations that he fathered a child uh, out of wedlock. And it was actually a boy they had adopted from uh, Asia. His wife and him had, and his wife and him had adopted a boy from Asia, but they claimed it was an illegitimate African-American son, I think. Uh, Bush denied those allegations and condemned them, but it worked. McCain lost um, South Carolina by a significant margin. He did win Michigan and his home state of Arizona, but it wasn't enough to save him. And he dropped out after Super Tuesday. So here you go. We have our nominees and the stage is set for the general election campaign, particularly the Veep stakes. You have Vice President Al Gore against Texas Governor George W. Bush. So I'll open it up to both of you guys for five or 10 minutes or so. What do you guys have to say about the primaries here? Uh, what do you find particularly interesting? And uh, do you think the race may have gone differently at all had uh, the other candidates won? Uh, I think it would have been interesting for sure. Um, I think really one thing that's really hard to understate here is just how popular, um, you know, like how successful the Al Gore primary was, even though he distanced himself from, um, you know, from candidates, uh, from, from his, his president, Bill Clinton. Uh, he won every single primary out there. That's not happened in a contested primary since. It's really, really difficult to do that. And obviously the Republican primary as well. But what's interesting about these is they were competitive early on two-person races and then faded away. Uh, modern primaries after this have all been large, large, diverse fields that have kind of narrowed down gradually. Um, this one is just always one-on-one. -on -one. It was Bush versus uh, John McCain. It was uh, Al Gore versus Bill Bradley. There was never another candidate in the running in Iowa or in New Hampshire in these states. If you compare that to today with the myriad of Democratic candidates you had in, in Iowa, uh, it's a really different ball game and a really different um, campaign to be running, I think. Here's the map for the Republican campaign, just so you guys know. I know it's – I just realized it's an SVG and not a, and not a photo, but you can see there – Obviously, Bush did very, very well. Andrew, yeah. do you have anything you want to add about the primaries? Um, I would say that it is uh, both primaries were case in point of the um, pre-Citizens United primary, where you had one um, like billionaire, millionaire that would bankroll your campaign. And once that money ran out and that person stopped supporting you further, you ran out of money real quick. Um, the Obama-Trump um, Bernie Sanders, hey, give us uh, $1 like to a million people and you get money that way, didn't exist back then. Yeah. The, the internet campaigning didn't exist. Like campaign websites existed, but were not good. You can mm -hmm. look at Bill Clinton and Bob Dole's websites. They're still up if you look at them. Um, like campaigns were just different and it was much harder for a front runner to lose their status. And this was really the last campaign without major internet involvement because just four years later in 2004, that was really the dawn of online fundraising and online activism. I mean, mm -hmm. Howard Dean's campaign, if we ever do talk about that race later, essentially grew from a solely online platform. That's how it reached most of its young, more liberal democratic supporters. And that fundamentally, this is kind of the end of an era for presidential campaigning. Mm hmm. So uh, now we'll move on to the second part. So the candidates are heading into their conventions and we go into Veep stakes. So uh, if you look at the shortlist, which I have up for both candidates, um, the Bush campaign actually picked Dick Cheney to head the vice presidential selection committee. So he initially was not at all viewed as a prospective vice presidential candidate, uh, but rather was viewed as the head of the selection process. And there was a pretty rigorous selection process. They had to complete an 83 question form about their backgrounds. 
showing that the Bush campaign was was quite dedicated, like, even above the normal standards of dedication associated with past campaign, mm -hmm. finding the proper nominee. Some of the other nominee uh, potential choices besides Dick Cheney were uh, the longtime senator from Missouri, John Danforth, uh, John McCain, the runner-up in that primary election, mm -hmm. popular Republican Governor George Pataki from New York, and Tom Ridge, another popular governor from Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. A potential complication with Ridge would have been, of course, that Tom Ridge is pro-choice, whereas yeah. George Bush was obviously courting a more uh, – comp his compassionate conservative message was really aimed more at religious voters, winning back a lot of the South that had voted for people like Ronald Reagan before, but had also gone to Bill Clinton. Yeah. Um, so I can understand why in hindsight um, that didn't happen because it would have really been an unusual situation to have you know a pro-choice uh, a, a ticket where one of the candidates is pro-choice and the other is pro-life. I don't think that's actually happened since. Yeah. Um, However, the parties weren't necessarily completely sorted on that issue um, in the 2000 cycle. Um, Bob Casey Sr. had just gotten out of office uh, yeah. as governor of Pennsylvania, I believe two years prior, and was uh, Ridge's uh, predecessor. So, yeah. and you still had numerous pro-life Dems, and if you wanted uh, and pro-choice uh, Republicans, mainly in the suburbs, and the few that remained in the cities. So if you wanted to shore up support there, you could have gone um, with that. And Pennsylvania also had that weird dynamic where the Republicans tended to be pro-choice and the Democrats tend to be pro-life. Notable uh, examples would be Arlen Specter being pro-choice. Yeah. Really uh, unusual wow. situation. That, that's, yeah. I mean, and even weirder, if you look at the map today, obviously, I think a meme on election Twitter is who is the Ron Klink George Bush voter? Um, obviously, both of those candidates lost Pennsylvania. But if you look at the maps, Rick Santorum won counties like Montgomery. He won counties like Delaware, which is today, or at least ring close to them. Uh, today, those are counties that solidly vote Democratic by double-digit margins or mm -hmm. you know high single digits at this point. But to have a pro-life, hardcore conservative like Santorum winning the state, while at the same time you have a, a Southern pro-choice uh, pro Democrat winning, uh, is actually the opposite of how the state used to go, like Andrew mm -hmm. was saying. And uh, ultimately, Dick Cheney was selected to the surprise of most pundits, as he was literally the head of the selection process, not necessarily considered a candidate. And he brought to the uh, he brought to the table some strong foreign policy background. He had been Secretary of mm -hmm. Defense. He had been a congressman from uh, Wyoming's at large district prior to that. Uh, so this was someone who was very experienced in that regard and who had been known quite well by the Bush family prior to Bush uh, Jr.'s running for president. He also brought to the ticket an electoral problem, which was that if he hadn't switched his registration from Texas to Wyoming, there would mm -hmm. have been a situation where the electors from Texas would have been unable to vote for uh, both of the candidates because the Constitution prohibits yeah. uh, a state from casting its electoral votes for two candidates from their home state. So uh, obviously he switched back to Wyoming. And he had, yeah. And he had a credibility from being from Wyoming, obviously, having represented there and his, his daughter you know, living there now. But that was a genuine uh, problem that has not been encountered since. Yeah, and Dick Cheney, I mean, one of the things about Dick Cheney is definitely perseverance. I mean, he has had quite a few health issues. I think he had four mm -hmm. heart attacks, so five, he might have had five at this point in his life, and he did have one during the presidential campaign. So that was definitely uh, an issue to some extent. Uh, but he's luckily been resilient through that. Uh, so that's quite interesting as well and good that he is okay from that. Uh, the uh, Democratic VP selection process we'll move on to now. Um, ultimately, as you guys know, Connecticut Senator Joe Lieberman, uh, fairly centrist, if not somewhat conservative Democrat in the Senate, a good friend of John McCain's, a good friend of George Bush as well. There was a scene where 
he was embracing George Bush that came back to bite him in that competitive 2006 primary against Ned Lamont. Uh, he was embracing Bush during the State of the Union. So um, other candidates that were potentials, Senator Evan Bayh of Indiana, uh, who would retire in 2010 and lose a comeback bid for his seat in 2016. John Edwards, who would be the 2004 Democrat VP <laughs> pick and then go down in flames after uh, committing adultery while his wife was dying in the hospital of cancer. Uh, Dick Jeffert, who had been, or Geffert, who had run for president in 88 and had been the Democrats leader in the House uh, for quite some time at that point, uh, since Tom Foley. And uh, you had John Kerry and Gene Shaheen as well from Massachusetts and New Hampshire, respectively. And uh, ultimately, Lieberman's pick was significant because he was the first Jewish American picked to be vice president. And Al Gore did do this somewhat strategically, trying to appeal to the strong population of Jewish voters in South Florida, ultimately many of whom did not even get to vote properly, thanks to Florida's confusing ballot design and ballot counting <laughs> irregularities, which we'll discuss further uh, as we get into the end of this election. If you, if you don't know about this election, you're in for a pretty funny story because if you think it's boring right now, it's definitely not boring at the yeah. end. Of I mean, it's basically yeah, this is this is at the same time one of the most milquetoast, uh, mil, yeah, milquetoast, whatever the however you pronounce it, elections in American history. Fairly generic. Neither both candidates fairly likable. Neither running on an extreme platform. I mean, you could argue Bush was sudden, conservative, boom. but. Chaos. Yeah, I mean, it literally went to all of a sudden Bush being a compassionate conservative who whose initial goals included education reform and healthcare reform to being the the demon that had sought to advance conservative rule on America because of this one Supreme Court decision that we'll go over later. Um, it was really yeah. kind of a shock, um, to say the least, because today, certainly today, Bush is not considered to be some extreme conservative. Um, in hindsight, but he's not. called many. I don't think many people would call him that. Okay, just for the sake of time, we're going to keep on moving here. The uh, Democratic convention that officially nominated Gore and Lieberman as their ticket was held in Los Angeles, and it was the first Democratic convention there since 1960. The uh, Bush-Cheney convention was held in Philadelphia, and uh, that convention actually occurred before the Democratic convention, which ended up actually giving the Democrats a little leg up in their convention boost, and that helped buoy Al Gore uh, up into first place in the polls for most of September. And uh, I guess we'll briefly talk about polling as well as we get into this general election campaign. For most of the cycle from the beginning of the year forward, George Bush had actually been leading in the poll. Um, he had had a fairly reliable polling lead, even up until August. In September, it started to fade, and Al Gore started to lead by single digits in most of the polling. And then in October, right around debate time, it started to shift back, and you started to see George Bush uh, begin to take back the lead in the polls. And going into the final elect election day average of national polling, George Bush was actually favored to win the national popular vote, if you look at that metric. And one of the things that was actually quite fascinating um, had to do with the crystal ball, and they actually talked about in 2000 how some pundits were expecting a potential reverse outcome. So as you guys all know, the election ended up uh, going where Bush won the electoral vote without winning the popular vote. And since I know in a past episode of the report, I've said this backwards like six times in a row and can't say it correctly, <laughs> I'll try to do the best I can without messing up because for some reason my brain just doesn't like to say this. I can backwards. help you out if need be. <laughs> I'll have Eric say it. So, yeah, so people were expecting Al Gore 
<laughs> just you say it. I'm going to mess yeah. it up. Already. So people were expecting that Al Gore might win the electoral vote and lose the popular vote. Exactly. Ultimately, it became the other way around. George Bush won the election while very, very narrowly losing the popular vote. We're talking uh, under you know, ha- half a percentage point, not, not an exceptionally large margin like 2016, where it was mm-hmm. two percentage points. This is very, very narrow. Um, and it's distributed across a lot of states. And really, I, I don't think I think people overstate the, uh, this, obviously, because you had a third party candidate like Nader. You had some other people on there that made it unusual and a, a bunch of really competitive states that could have gone the other way. Because if you look at this map, there's a ton of electoral possibilities that could have yeah. happened that didn't. Um, we'll it, I mean, you see, yeah, you see competitive states here that have not been competitive since or have been marginally competitive. There are there are electoral combinations here that would shock people today that almost happened. Because mm-hmm. uh, we're talking five states with that were under or around a percentage point, um, which is just shocking, I think, in modern times. Yeah, and we're going to spend essentially the last 20 minutes looking at mm-hmm. results. That's what we'd normally do. Obviously, we have to focus more as well on the end and the outcome of this election because of the court case. But we'll be doing that later. But but yes, it's very interesting because out of the four elections, and I'm excluding 1824, where a Republican was elected president without the popular vote, there's never been an instance where the Democrat uh, did that the opposite flipped way around? I mean, it's always been a case where the Democrat won the popular vote in those four, but lost the electoral vote and thus didn't become president. So mm-hmm. it would it was reasonable to see why some people were expecting that because Bush was ahead in the national polls, but swing state polls individually were kind of close, uh, especially in Florida. Al Gore ended up tightening the gap in Florida going into the final days of the election. So it was a reasonable argument and. Had it happened, that would have been fascinating. Looking at the way trends are going now, it's something that I don't think we're ever going to see. But if we do see it, it will certainly be very fascinating. Mm-hmm. So well, people think- had talked about the possibility in 2012, of course, but ultimately that didn't come to pass. Yeah. So we're looking, we'll move on now to the uh, general election <laughs> campaign. So we're basically going to be talking about everything involved in the general election, main policy issues, criticisms of policy from both candidates, common phrases and gaffes, and scandals as well that impacted the race. So lockbox. we're going to get to that with debates. That's actually the next section after this. So you can, mm-hmm. we have to save all those, those things for the debate section. Mm-hmm. Uh, but one of the main things, some of the main issues that were discussed in the collection had to do with con- essentially continuing the growth of the Clinton administration. And, uh, you know, Bush had a different, different take on that. Bush wanted to take more of the Reaganite view of cutting taxes and making the environment as pro-business as possible, which granted Clinton attempted to do and did with some degree of success. Um, But um, overall, when you look at it, Bush had a different policy uh, than Clinton. I mean, there was a fundamental difference in the policy of addressing the economy, addressing health care between the two candidates, or I guess you could say uh, between the two administrations, because I said Clinton but when I say Clinton, I basically mean Gore, because Clinton was basically running on the Gore policies without ever mentioning Clinton. So, uh, yes, the budget was an important issue because there was a budget surplus. And I forgot to mention that earlier during the economy, but it was the first mm-hmm. time since 1969 that there was a budget surplus. And it's probably the last time ever for the history of the United States. There will be a budget. <laughs> so, especially after coronavirus. Uh <laughs> they also proposed Social Security and Medicare reform. Healthcare was still a big, big issue. Obviously, um, Gore wasn't necessarily pro 100% universal healthcare, like Bill Bradley was effectively arguing during the primary campaign. Probably scarred by the flashbacks of uh, Hillary Clinton's activism for the healthcare bill in 1993 that ultimately helped sink Democrats in 1994. Uh, but Bush mm-hmm. definitely had a more free market, less interventionist government approach to healthcare. And that was a fundamental difference between. 
uh, Gore and Bush in that campaign. They also had competing plans for, for taxes and foreign policy was also brought up because one of the few things that Bush could effectively attack uh, the Clinton administration for was foreign policy. He particularly used this to attack their involvement in Somalia, where over tw almost 20 Americans had died uh, in intervention there. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's very sad and unfortunate, uh, but he largely felt he could do this because it was not an economic issue. And it could be something that could draw votes in because the Clinton administration and by extension Gore couldn't as easily refute it. Like he couldn't say, oh, the economy's bad, vote for me, because it wasn't bad. And he had to kind of bend his way around it to convince people that he could keep that Clinton economic growth going. Another thing that maybe played into his focus on foreign policy was his running mate. Dick Cheney's obviously, whatever you think of him, foreign policy expert and brought that necessary foreign policy experience to a ticket that would otherwise be lacking it. Uh, when you've got a governor at the top of the ticket with no effective foreign policy experience, they understand how the executive branch works because state executive offices and the federal office, uh, obviously the difference is scale, but they're very similar in their functions. Um, and Cheney helped bring that foreign policy experience to the election. So what do you guys think about the issues in this campaign, how they played out, what was most important to the voters? One of the most ironic things that I um, found when researching um, the 2000 election is George Bush ran on the opposing nation building, mm -hmm. which is yeah. hilarious in hindsight. Yeah, there is a quote where he did say, I don't want our, I don't think our troops ought to be used for nation building during the campaign, which is really <laughs> ironic because that's pretty much what George Bush is remembered for now by most people that aren't mm -hmm. uh, interested or yeah. apathetic to politics. Yeah, he got forced into it, and obviously his term was kind of derailed um, ultimately in terms of his priorities. His ultimate domestic priorities were overshadowed by the pressing international crisis that really – um, it just, I mean, had come out of nowhere. Obviously, people knew there were inklings of stuff going on, but nobody had suspected something like it. So, I mean, obviously that, but it's it's definitely interesting to look at. It's similar to Woodrow Wilson declaring that he's not going to enter World War One, FDR saying he's going to stay out of World War Two. I mean, sometimes you're forced into things, and and in hindsight, it looks pretty weird. But he did run with, and I think part of it was a reason why he had to do that is because he had. I can go into third party camps a bit in a while, but he had to deal with the reform party. Pat, Pat Buchanan was yeah. running, who had been a force in the Republican primaries, was running on the reform line on a platform like that. And he had to appeal to a full spectrum of conservatives, to some of whom that was an appealing message. It's definitely really interesting in hindsight, in hindsight though. So overall, I think both candidates basically ran as moderates. Um, <laughs> overall, yeah. yeah. pretty sad. Part yeah. of George Bush being a moderate is due to the fact that Democrats still control the legislature and the lieutenant governorship mm -hmm. in Texas, which is more powerful than the governorship. So there wasn't much conservative red meat that he could pass, but the nation yeah. didn't want conservative or democratic red meat at all. They just wanted to keep the good times going. Well, they mm -hmm. wanted a continuation of that third way political philosophy that had been introduced by Clinton in 1992, because mm -hmm. America was going well. Obviously, it was pre the 9-11 catastrophe. The economy was still strong. That also brought up something else I wanted to mention about FDR and Wilson. Uh, obviously, they saw the war developing uh, before they entered it. 9-11 was really a, a tragic jolt that kind of jolted the United States into it in a way that we didn't expect, which makes it different from the lead up to a war. Um, but regardless of what you think about Bush, at this point in the campaign, he could have very well legitimately opposed nation building and his philosophy changed. I mean, candidates change when they are elected president and beliefs are often reneged upon uh, once, once uh, candidates enter office if they win. Uh, so mm -hmm. that brings us 
to one of the mo major scandals in the campaign, probably the most important scandal at the end of the campaign that's worth bringing up, uh, and it's the Bush DUI scandal, essentially. The Gore campaign denied any involvement in this, um, but it was basically just about a week before the election. Uh, it came out that Bush had been pulled over for a DUI, uh, I think in 19, it was during the 1970s at his familial home in Kenny Buckport, Maine, but he was uh, pulled over for a DUI after after leaving the bar where he was with his the rest of his family, I think his sister, and uh, he was pulled over. And um, this campaign effectively dogged Bush. I wouldn't say majorly dogged Bush. It obviously didn't end his campaign. He quickly essentially put out a statement denouncing uh, alcoholism and drunk driving. And uh, one of the main issues that, that kind of made conservatives mad was that he couldn't even tell his own family about it. They found out about it, particularly his two daughters found out about the scandal before he could even tell them. And it had been effectively kept as a secret prior to this. Um, you know, is an example of something that had gone on in the former president, now former president's youth that he didn't believe uh, should be brought up because he had changed as a person. Uh, and it was just a mistake, essentially, what he played at office. So he denounced everything that had happened and he apologized that he had kept it a secret. Uh, and he effectively concluded by saying that people change. Essentially, that was he was implying that people change over time and everyone makes mistakes in their lives. And ultimately, we don't really know exactly what impact this had on the election because it happened right before the election. But what do you guys think uh, this did to impact the election and how big of a role do you think the Bush DUI ultimately may have had in changing the results at all? It may have changed a few votes, but I don't think it, it changed too much. I mean, ultimately, this was a very close election regardless. I think it was going to be a very close election if this didn't come out or not. It may have been the difference between winning the popular vote and losing it, but we don't know where those votes came from. They could have come from votes that he was in states that he was safe in states like Georgia or North Carolina or in the South. It basically did undermine his message that he was going to be a moral break from the Clinton administration and bring back um, non-scandal. Um, but um, it's still something that was in the past and that you could really not, uh, what's the word? Like, it really didn't matter in the big picture. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we're going to move on to the next segment, and this is the last segment before we get into actual analysis of the voting and particularly the results. And this is the debates. And debates often function as a medium for candidates to express their messages to the voters. I mean, that's their fundamental purpose. Some elections, more candidates find the debates, uh, or sorry, some elections, voters find the debates more useful than they do in other elections. But overall, except for 1996, the majority of voters have always found elections, according to Pew Research Center polling, uh, debates to be somewhat important in explaining the candidates' policies, even if they don't ultimately change their votes. So there were three presidential debates, all of, who, all of them were held in October, and there was one VP debate. Some of the notable moments I know you guys can talk about because they're funny mm -hmm. and they offer a little break before we get into the chaos that was the uh, aftermath of this election. Gore was accused of hovering over Bush in the debate, and this was kind of similar to Trump kind of like getting behind Clinton and being intimidating during the debate. Gore was yeah. kind of doing the same thing, and Bush was kind of like shooing him away like, what are you doing? Can I help you? Yeah. Except Trump's was meant to be kind of funny. I think I think Gore thought his Gore was going to be like intimidating. Like he was going to answer like it was – he was make, pushing you know, Bush to task on it, but Bush was just Gore. able to literally shrug it off. He just – like literally. So, I mean, it's uh, – if we had the video clip, Gore, I'd show Gore it. Gore was being a little bit uh, – a bit – awkward with that for sure yeah he, like literally so, so bush was explaining something he was being tasked with accusing uh 
you know, of something of, of Gore. And he was explaining it and Gore just kind of walks up to him and stares at him. And then as he's walking up, Bush just kind of nods just kind of funnily and it just kind of undermined the entire, whatever Gore was trying to do. Um, I also recall there was like a scan or there was a, a scandal or some sort of thing with the wire. There had been accusations of using a wire, um, you know, having, uh, you know, stuff so happen every debate. I mean, Trump yeah. tried to get Biden to sign a pledge not to use a wire before this debate. Yeah, uh, the other obviously, yeah, that thing. was a, that was a kind of an online thing in the nascent years of the internet. That was kind yeah. of something that showed up on the internet message boards and whatnot. Another thing that um, Andrew brought up earlier that was a really big message in that first debate that Gore honestly never shut up about was keeping Medicare and Social Security in a locked box. I think yeah. he said the word locked box at least 50 times during the debate. Yeah. I mean, that's exaggeration, but he said it a lot. Yeah, which needless to say, there is no lock box for Social Security and Medicare, um, whether he was using that as a literal or figurative. Draining funds out of Medicare and Social Security, cutting the budget. So keep it in that locked box. Uh, It wasn't in the lock box, and now it's close to going bankrupt or insolvent by 2023. So Al Gore is probably like rolling around angry right now. Yeah, it was kind of the Rubio, um, you know, the Rubio, uh, what was this line in the 2016 debates, you know, um, uh, uh, Barack Obama, like not being who let's, he said he was. Save this for the 2016 episode. <laughs> yeah. but, but it's very similar like, to that in terms of the 2016 going to be our wildest episode. Or yeah, we'll be there's a point where repetition turns into uh, into just inanity. Yeah, it became the meme of the cycle. <laughs> there are also some other quotes. Well, we're still on the lighthearted stuff. Fuzzy math. Bush said that a lot against Gore. Whenever Gore would quote like precise economic statistics, Bush would kind of brush it off and say it's fuzzy math. Uh, and Bush was also mocked on SNL, and this is kind of the beginning of the Bushisms that would dog his whole presidential administration. Strategy or whatever, strategy. And uh, you know, he as if you know President Bush, he means well, but he made quite a few gaffes like that over the course of administration. So this was kind of the first preview for the American people, the very first. Yeah. So without further ado, we get into the final. Um, we get into the election itself. We get into our mm-hmm. results. So first off, I'll show you guys. Here were the results from the election. It ended up being very close. Um, electorally, it was very close. He's kind of saw the traditional coalitions going on here. Uh, the Republicans resurged in the South overall. Uh, in the 96 election, Bill Clinton carried Missouri, Arkansas, Louisiana, Tennessee, Kentucky. Uh, he, he carried all of those states in the South. And... Um, those states all flipped back. Even Tennessee, which was the home state of Al Gore, was still close. Now, these states were still close. Arkansas was still competitive. Uh, Missouri was very competitive, very close. And Tennessee was close. Kentucky and yeah. Louisiana, not quite as much. I know Eric wants to talk about this, but you yeah. see overall Bush clawed back a lot of that territory from Clinton. and mm-hmm. Yeah. If you ever if you ever watched the debate coverage, and actually I'd recommend doing so on it's easily available on YouTube. You can watch kind of the archived video coverage. One of the things that really um, what was kind of funny towards the end of it was the Gore campaign was really, you know, thinking of it. They were really um, you know relying on winning Tennessee, and you had Donna Brazil late into the night after Tennessee had been called. Like I think we're going to win Tennessee. I think it's going to come back. And there was the news anchors just kind of staring at her like we've already called Tennessee. Um, it's really not going to go back at this point. They thought they had it in the bag. Back then, states win, candidates winning their home state was a given. I mean, yeah. it was it was that if you're from that state, you win it. Today, that's obviously not the case. We've had, I mean, yeah. you, there have been some examples of it, but generally speaking, it's not going to give you a huge bonus. But um, I have a margins map here to kind of go over things a little bit more. 
um, to kind of really show the competitive states of the cycle because there were 11 states where the vote was within 10% of the popular vote. And there's mm-hmm. some states you wouldn't think about. Obviously, the, the closest was Florida. That was within you know, a fraction of a fraction of a percentage point. But the next closest was New Mexico. Specifically in a little bit. Yeah. The next closest was New Mexico. Then you had places like Wisconsin, Iowa, Oregon was the fifth closest state in the the cycle. And there's a reason for that. That's not really related to either candidates. Um, You even had other ones. Uh, uh, Harrison mentioned that obviously Louisiana and Arkansas weren't particularly close, but they were closer this cycle than Virginia and Colorado. Um, Mm -hmm. to, To give you context today, West Virginia was closer than Maine's first congressional district, which is the more liberal of the two congressional districts. Um, like th- there's really some stuff here you wouldn't see anymore. And a lot of it goes down to <laughs> Ralph Nader. Uh, if, if you, if you have a little bit of time for me to explain kind of the, the yeah, stuff going on go into the fact, but just, just a little background before he does Ralph Nader is yeah. largely considered the number one reason from the perspective of political mm-hmm. pundits for Gore's loss. He took almost mm-hmm. 3% of the nationwide vote. And if you had given his margins to Bush in the swing states, as Eric's about to explain, or to, sorry, to Gore in the swing states, as Eric's about to explain, it would have been enough to trump Florida and elect Gore president. Yeah. So third parties were really in an interesting state going into the cycle. The Reform Party had actually been looking to be a serious political party. They garnered almost 10% of the vote in uh, 1996. They flipped a, go- a governor's office in Minnesota with Jesse Ventura, which nobody expected to happen. And then the party just infamously just imploded in an epic fashion. You had the Perot Rospro who founded it lost control of his own party. Uh, it went to Pat Buchanan who wanted to turn it into a vehicle for evangelical, he's Catholic, but more evangelical conservatism uh, focused on religion and paleoconservatism. The other wing of the reform party had wanted to go with John Hagelin, who was very much a liberal, uh, was known for advocating transcendental meditation, uh, really kind of a, a fringe candidate to begin with, but they didn't have a strong candidate. So that party imploded, went to under 1% of the vote. Ralph Nader, on the other hand, had gotten less than 1% of the vote in 96. He didn't campaign at all. He just kind of sat there as the Greens, you know, became a thing. And uh, he ran as the liberal alternative. Obviously, I don't mean for this map to be, uh, didn't realize this was SVG, but this is what Ralph Nader's performance looked by state by state. Um, And you'll notice here um, where he was strongest. States like Colorado. He, he basically pulled Colorado from a state that, that Bush only won around 51%, 52% of the vote in, a competitive state. But he took enough to where it was you know out of reach. Another state, Oregon. Uh, he won a large percentage of the vote in Oregon, which was still a fairly competitive state at that point. And it was one of the closest states in that cycle as a result. Both candidates only got around 47%. Uh, Nader was able to pull 5%. The other area he was really strong in was the Northeast. And I'm going to go ahead and pull this, uh, get rid of this tag right here. And, and um, real quick, as I'm sure you're about to mention, I mean, just to show the gravity of, of Nader's effect on the election, mm-hmm. if you had effectively looked at any of the close swing states, uh, Missouri, Nevada, Florida, literally any of them, particularly New Hampshire, considering yeah, he did New so Hampshire. well there, it would have been enough to flip the whole election without Florida. If if Nader's votes had gone to Gore in New Hampshire, we would have he would have been president. And just imagine how drastically mm-hmm. different our timeline now might be had just a few Nader votes gone the other way in New Hampshire. We'd be in a completely different universe right mm-hmm. now. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the, the biggest performance for Nader obviously was that northeastern and west coast phenomenon. Uh, George W. Bush only won 41% of the vote in Vermont, but because Ralph Nader won almost, uh, he won 7% of the vote, uh, it was a state that was in 10, within 10 percentage points. Uh, he did best in Alaska, but Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Maine, 
all of these states saw reduced vote shares for Republicans due to uh, Ralph Nader. It's one reason uh, Maine was competitive. Maine's second district uh, narrowly voted for uh, for Al Gore um, with, uh, around one percent of the vote, one to two percent of the vote. Um, you know, decades before Trump was a thing. Um, so really, Ralph Nader was a big influence on this election, and he ran specifically to specifically and un unapologetically to the left of Al Gore. His biggest issue was campaign finance reform. People tend to think universal health care, all this other stuff. The one thing he campaigned on most was campaign finance reform. And that that sought some appeal from people. He also campaigned, obviously, on universal health care, consumer protections, all sorts of things. And he did not seem to care if his election, if his you know, campaigning would swing the election to uh, to George Bush. I think his, he said something along the lines of, you know, yeah, I'm taking votes away. That's what you do in an election. Um, he, he really did not seem to care. He seemed to more care about hitting that 5% threshold nationwide, which mm -hmm. would have made them a major party. Obviously, they weren't able to hit it, so yeah. neither goal was met. He, he you know, the left obviously lost the election, Similar. and the Greens didn't hit 5%. Similar as well, and I'm going to see what Andrew has to say about this as well, but kind of similar to the Libertarians in 2016, Gary Johnson was also aiming to hit mm -hmm. 5%. Some, and, and people would argue both ways in that. Some people would argue that with Gary Johnson out of the race, some of Trump's percentages might have gone up in some of the key swing mm -hmm. states because at the moment now, if you look at the results, he did he did end up winning a lot of these states, but it wasn't necessarily as much that his percentage went up from Romney. It was more that Clinton's fell from Obama and vice versa. Similar to Nader, a lot of Democrats were very upset with someone like Jill Stein because had the Stein votes gone to Clinton in, in really close mm -hmm. states like uh, Michigan, for example, it would have flipped states like that. And the, those yeah. would have had a big impact on the uh, Electoral College result. And again, we'd be in a potentially different timeline. So it really shows how people always view third parties as very insignificant. But in really close elections like this, especially ones where there's a disparity between the popular vote and the Electoral College, Third parties can make a really big difference, like a serious yeah. difference. And it's really amazing how much they can impact American history. Yeah. Five states within 1% of the vote. I mean, that's I mean, obviously this is also the only election the Green Party's gotten over 2% uh, of the vote in. Uh, obviously, they got over 1% in 2016, but this is literally their their one and only election that they can kind of hang their hat on is that they accomplished anything of note. Um, I'll kind of throw it to Andrew to, to kind of go over the rest yeah. of this uh, if he wants to. But um, I, I just figured it's important to go over third parties in this election because they arguably swung it. Um, you know, they did. Indeed, yeah. To think that if the Green Party didn't get 10% in the 98 um, uh, New Mexico gubernatorial race and they didn't pick a liberal lion like Ralph Nader, the election would have been completely different. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, just imagine even to our viewers thinking about what it may, what America may be like if of a different country had, I don't know, either way, in this case, Nader dropped out and Gore would have been president, or if you removed Stein or Johnson as variables in an election like 2016, they do definitely play a major role. So that brings us to basically what 2000s most remembered for. And the, uh, basically the epitome is flo of Florida's uh, character <laughs> be characterized as the marquee swing state, the swing state. And, um, it has been very, very close in every election since 2000, except 2004, uh, where it went to uh, Bush by over 5%. But just to briefly share my screen here so we can uh, mm -hmm. take a look at yeah. the results in Florida. It's worth noting, this isn't the only swing state this cycle. This is just the only one of these super uber close states that went to George Bush. Let's you had states like Wisconsin, uh, New Mexico, uh Iowa and Oregon that all went to, to, uh, to Gore by under 7,000 votes. We're talking about Florida. I'll just clarify because that's a good point by Eric. 
We are talking about Florida, not because it's the only closed state, because it wasn't, mm-hmm. but because it was the significant state. The other states, was, obviously, yeah. since they didn't the go to Bush, didn't have lawsuits. Yeah, this was and the only state that Bush didn't go to Bush either. This is the only state that Bush won by less than one percent of the vote. His next closest state was uh, was New Hampshire, which he won by one point three percent of the vote. Whereas Gore had a ton of states where he won with under 05 percent of the vote, under seven thousand votes in all of these states. This is the only one of those states yeah. that did not go to Gore. And there are a lot of reasons people will talk about about why this did not go to Al Gore. Um, and there's contention yeah, well, to this day. But just looking at the results first, uh, I mean, one of the big flaws people have with our electoral college system now is that it's not proportionally allocated by the percentage of the popular vote that each candidate will get in yeah. the state. For example, Bush can win by 400 votes or so, uh, 0.01%, and he gets all 25 electoral votes. So that's definitely been a criticism by both parties depending essentially on who wins in an election year. But Florida, incredibly, incredibly, incredibly close. Very, very close mm-hmm. that cycle. And, um, you know, the Florida election, there's a lot of controversies that surround it. I'll briefly talk about a few of them before we get into the court litigation. And then I'll have you guys talk about it because this mm-hmm. is something you have to focus on because it's very important. So Florida started off being called for Al Gore. Then the call was retracted by the media networks uh, when the rest of the state started to come in. After that, they called it for Bush later in the night. And then the networks had to recall it a second time and remove the call. Uh, and this was a big failing for the networks. And just like we're going to talk about how this led to reform in ballot making, particularly in Florida, we're also going to talk about how it impacted the media and how they reformed the way in which they make calls. And I hope, for God's sakes, they don't make any dumb mistakes this election. <laughs> it's never it's expected. Pandemic, so I'm expecting this to be like 2,000, but like in a bunch of states instead of just one or two. Um, but basically... One of the big criticisms of Florida was ballot design. You had very confusing ballot design. And I'm bringing up, just so you know where some of these anecdotes are coming from, they're coming from the 2000 book by Sabato's Crystal Ball. They do one for every election and midterm cycle. I highly recommend you get them. So these are just kind of some uh, anecdotes that I have memorized essentially from the first chapter. Um, Mm -hmm. So basically the butterfly ballot design throughout Florida, particularly in South Florida, was considered one of the major aspects of essentially voter suppression in Florida. It did not function properly. You had voters in South Florida, uh, and yeah, there's a good example of a butterfly ballot. Incredibly confusing stuff, particularly for elderly voters, and a lot of the elderly Jewish population that was considered to be a major constituency that would be energized by Lieberman in South Florida, their turnout was significantly reduced by the confusion here. And uh, the butterfly ballot's confusing in the way it's set up, People ended up voting for vice presidential candidates, essentially, when they were trying to vote for presidential candidates. Mm -hmm. One woman couldn't read the ballot in an anecdote, and she wrote, I would like to cast my vote for George Bush, wrote it on the ballot. That ballot wouldn't (laughs) be counted. It wouldn't. Not because no one was reading these ballots, and some older people didn't understand that. They go through a machine that reads them. So ultimately, you had hundreds and thousands of incorrectly cast votes or underreported votes in Florida that essentially disenfranchised voters in Florida. And the New York Times actually did a study uh, as people were beginning to push for recounts in Florida. And they did a recount in Florida. And this is wild because this is the historic thing. And for political nerds, it's just unfathomable. The New York Times recount study, and this is not a lie. I swear to God, this is in the crystal ball book. They did, a stu- they did their recount analysis and they determined that if all the votes had been properly counted, um, which ultimately the court ruled they didn't have to be, Gore would have won Florida by three votes. (laughs) (laughs) 
Six million votes. Three votes, which would be the closest contest by percent for any presidential winner in any state in U.S. history ever. You're talking in precedent statewide. You would actually have wanted, in theory, to have a to just run another election. This happened in New Hampshire once. There was a New Hampshire Senate race. This was within this range. I think it was well, decided by around ten votes. Four. The Senate just refused we're, to certify it. And votes. yeah, they were the Senate refused to certify the election. They're like, this is too close. Run it again. Like just. <laughs> Just and the, the, the other candidate won by a large margin, but two, two right. votes out of two hundred thousand votes or four hundred thousand yeah. is nothing compared to three votes out of five point five million votes. <laughs> and every recount has a margin of error of like a hundred votes. Yeah, and we're talking about like this wasn't the only state the cycle as I mentioned before. I mean, you had um, you had New Mexico was decided by under um, if you look at it, they could have done a recount there, but Bush decided not to. Was decided by three hundred sixty six votes, but in in New Mexico that's zero point zero six percent of the vote. And in Florida, yeah. you're getting into fractions of fractions of fractions of fractions. Unbelievable fractions. We'd have to ask some of the Twitter math geniuses yeah. to calculate the actual yeah. number. Yeah, but the greatest fractions, the, the best fractions you've ever seen. No, you're, you're probably talking about like, I mean, honestly, I'll calculate it for you right now. I'm just curious. I'll put it into the calculator. It's just to show our <laughs> viewers just how amazing this is. And I'm just doing my best yeah. estimate here. And it's unprecedented to this day. I don't think we've had another state that's been decided by under a thousand votes in the presidential races since then. It's like um, eleven. It's like eleven or actually, yeah. it's like uh, yeah. it's like eleven or twelve zeros. I think. <laughs> or more. We've had numerous state legislative races that have tied. Uh, yeah. The most recent one being uh, 2017 in Virginia, where they just picked a name out of a hat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> imagine if the presidential election was decided by that. If there's a no, imagine if it came down to um, deciding breaking a tie in Nevada, and they do it by drawing a card. High card wins. <laughs> technically, if the uh, if the votes for the House delegation for pre so technically, if the presidency ties two sixty nine two sixty nine, and then after that the uh, there's a twenty five twenty five tie among the House delegations in the House, they have to flip a coin to see who's president. I'm telling you, this is going to be 2024 when Rick Scott is the Republican nominee. He's going to win Florida by like three votes. No, he's going to win Florida go by one vote. <laughs> it's going to be decided by a coin flip. That'd be the most 2020 thing if the House vote ties after the election ties and the president gets picked by a coin flip. <laughs> I think at that point you just have riots in the streets. You just oh, you know, just civil war probably. But we have to yeah. get back on topic now. Yeah, for sure. And, um, I mean, one one other thing to note here is of course other things you want to talk about with Florida before we talk about the litigation. Palm Beach County. Uh, Pat Buchanan's stronghold, uh, as Ari Fletcher infamously said, this is the, the Pat Buchanan got a ton of votes in Palm Beach County, one of the most Jewish counties in Florida, and people were very confused because obviously Pat Buchanan has a reputation. And uh, when when you know when Ari Fletcher, who was I think the Bush's press secretary or one of the higher ups in his campaign, was asked, he said, "Well, he got so many votes in Palm Beach County because Palm Beach County is a Pat Buchanan stronghold." Like that was his literal terminology there. Um, and that goes to the butterfly ballot. I mean, you look at the butterfly ballot. If I, I I'd bring it up again, but it's not really formatted. You could easily vote for um, I for the wrong candidate. Talk a little bit about that before we move on to the litigation, because yeah. this is the peak of just barely getting into what counts as not voter suppression technically under the law, but is clearly yeah. the worst way you could design a ballot ever. Yeah, I'm going to pull it up again here real quick. With, as, I with mean, the, even for even for the more adept analysts like Austin and stuff, it's kind of confusing to look at. I mean, I think it's pretty easy to make a mistake if you're rushing through this or if you have poor eyesight. I mean, look at this ballot. Yeah, here we go. 
<laughs> oh, it's. I gone. mean, it's just it's it's atrocious. It's I mean, it's it's indefensible. Um, like I if you look at it, Eric. Yeah, there we go. Can you see it? No. Okay, sorry. Let me. Um, but it's it's atrocious. I think there were memes in the Onion. There was a there was a video about a voting machine there that Florida had designed, which was like composed of like a thousand levers. Like th this all came from this sort of thing. If you look at this right here, this ballot is horrendous. Um, you vote for so if you want to vote for George Bush, you press this button, which is right here. If you want to vote for Al Gore, you're supposed to press this one. But it could look like you press this one because. Um, because that's right. That's closer to Al Gore's name. Yeah, they should have put it all in one line. I don't know why this is so hard. Why did yeah. they just? Yeah, because it's Florida. I mean, it's Palm Beach County. It's South Florida. Usually, it's it's Broward or Palm Beach that have these sorts of problems. I know that's the meme is is Broward. In this case, it was Palm Beach. Um, and this confusing ballot design is part of the reason why you can see if you wanted to vote for George Bush, he's at the very top. It's it's almost impossible not to notice who George Bush is. It, it'd be very difficult for you to press the wrong. Yeah. Pressing the wrong key. Okay, but if I'm you want to vote for Al Gore, talking about older voters with poor eyesight, yeah. and I know it's cliche, but button four and button five are so close together, you could easily yeah. make a mistake. And that's why Pat Buchanan got a lot of votes. It's not because Palm Beach County was a Pat Buchanan stronghold. Yeah, exactly. It's and because it's the ballot design was horrible. Lieberman's ability as the first Jewish VP nominee to energize Jewish voters yeah. in South Florida. But but basically that ballot design, and there is a similar design in Indiana this year where you essentially have to look at the number next to all the candidates. You have to bubble it in like a test for like the SAT, for example. You have to like bubble in who you're voting for. See, we should have brought Jenya in. We should have brought Jenya in for this because she could bring some much needed clarity to this. It's nonsense. How does this get out of the out of the drawing board? Like how do people look at this and like you know what? That no, works. Heather, well, oh Andrew, what do you want to say real quick? You have to design things for the stupid people. Right. <laughs> it's not even necessarily stupidity sometimes. I mean, that ballot design is just confusing. I mean, and when people made mistakes, some people realized it and they tried to double punch, and then that invalidates the ballot because you voted for two people. And that's before we get into the whole hanging chair. People were circling, people, people were bubbling. Yeah, the hanging chads, another big meme of the <laughs> election. It's like you press the button, but it didn't puncture the paper enough for it to count. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, it, I honestly wouldn't even call this voter suppression. It's unintentional voter suppression because it's just stupid ballot design. And thankfully, a lot of places have reconsidered their design. And Florida is much better at this now. 2018 aside, they have gotten their act together in general regarding this. They're one of the better states in terms of getting votes out early, having ballots that aren't horribly designed as far as I know, but, uh, with the exception of Broward County, apparently, because they Brenda Brenda Snipe or Brenda Sykes. Uh, whatever her name is, um, it just uh, so yeah, much of this is so that. much of this is just wrong that anyone with a, anyone who was competent could look at that butterfly ballot and be like, you know what, we should redesign this because it doesn't. Maybe we should put the candidates in one line instead <laughs> in of one line. column, so it looks like you're voting for eight candidates at once, and then you don't press down hard enough, and then there's just some guy looking <laughs> at hanging chads, like confused, like what am I doing with my life? Any other like any other ballot ever. In terms of things, I mean, if I get a ballot in the state of North Carolina, the candidates are listed like the way they're listed normally, all in a line. And this one, there's two lines. It, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. So on that note, I think we'll move on to the litigation stuff surrounding this because you've got some – obviously, this is the meat and potatoes of the end, the final resolution to this campaign. It never yeah. fully resolved the tensions that began to grow here. I mean, this is kind of the birth of polarization slowly, and it slowly mm -hmm. developed and churned to where we are now. 
but you know there were significant protests, uh, or there were significant protests at the Supreme Court for both sides. Gore and Bush supporters mm-hmm. were protesting at the Supreme Court. So where did this all start? It started with a petition uh, that was supported by the attorneys of Al Gore in Florida to petition the Supreme, the state Supreme Court in Florida, to rule that there should be recounts of the Florida ballots. Had there been recounts, obviously we can't know for sure with some irregularities, but we probably would have had, I mean, Gore won by three votes in that New York Times recount. Either way, it would have been very close, whether it went to Gore or to Bush. Uh, but more votes, but probably more votes for Gore would have been counted had they done that. And the Florida Supreme Court handed down a 4-3 ruling that there would be that there would be recounts allowed in Florida for the undervotes and the unreported ballots. And uh, the Supreme Court uh, took on the case because the uh, Bush campaign was appealing the decision of the Florida Supreme Court. And actually in a seven to two decision, only Justice Stevens and uh, Justice Ginsburg dissented. But initially, uh, at least for that part of the decision, a good chunk mm-hmm. of the court, including some of the Democratic appointed justices, they agreed uh, with the general concept that it was unconstitutional under the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment uh, to hold those recounts. Now, I so would one, one correction I, here was only one Democratic justice, which would be Justice Breyer. The other one was David Souter, who was a Republican, yeah. but had become part of the liberal bloc by that point. Yeah, yeah. And uh, someone like John Paul Stevens was technically a Republican appointed justice, but had a very sure. liberal yeah. record on the court. Uh, yeah even more so than someone like Earl Warren, who was famous for the due process revolution on the court in the mid-20th century. But uh, uh, a lot of people argue the decision was done backwards. Uh, Some people found it hard to grasp the court's initial argument for how it violated the Equal Protection Clause, because it almost seemed like they were limiting voters and limiting their right to vote rather than increasing them. But this is what the court ruled, regardless of what the opinion is from the court. And uh, regardless of what you think on the court's opinion. And this effectively concluded the uh, campaign season. Uh, it ended the election. Uh, Al Gore conceded. The attorneys went to rest. Uh, the people calmed down or began to calm down. And they just accepted that it was going to be four years of President Bush if they didn't vote for him. Obviously, yeah. the significance here, first election since 1888 where the winner did not win the popular vote. And like Eric brought up earlier, since women couldn't vote back then and blacks in the South were disenfranchised, this was really the first election in American history uh, in which everyone could vote that didn't, um, where the electoral vote didn't reaffirm the mandate of the popular vote. Mm-hmm. And um, I do want to give a little bit more clarity yeah. into the Supreme Court decision, if that's all right, just to be no clear problem. on what the yeah. So the equal protection clause argument was basically that most everyone agreed upon, aside from Ginsburg and Stevens, was that you can't have different counting standards in different counties. Their, their argument was that which seven of the nine justices agreed upon was that you needed to have the same standard in every county. I think that's a fairly reasonable one. The The big one was whether the date that had been established um, would be the one they have to meet. It was over the date of recounts and whether or not a recount could conclude. Um, Scalia explained later, you know, basically they just wanted to get this thing over with. They didn't think the election could be drawn out. Um, there are various reasons, you know, people argued over that point. I need to mention as well that I forgot to mention earlier, mm-hmm. and I don't know why this slipped past me, but arguably the more important part of the court's decision was the second decision. The first Correct. decision to clarify basically said that uh, what Eric said, you couldn't have different methods of recount in different counties. The second <laughs> decision, which for some reason I forgot to mention earlier, actually ended the campaign season by saying no method of recount could be allowed in any form in Florida. And that was a partisan decision five to four. Yeah, and, and they were running up against the um, – there was a time constraint. The Electoral College was going to meet on December uh, 18th, and that decision was handed down on the 12th, like 
there's no way you can finish a recount of 20 million votes or however many yeah. in six days. The nightmare they were hoping to avert, and I think it's very clear they were hoping to avert something here, was that they did not want a scenario where like the recount was halfway done or three-fourths of the way done and the result had changed and it would look different. And then there was a debate over certification. It was a political decision, but I think the intent of what they were going for was like, we can't let that we can't let a nightmare scenario happen. There was a third decision which Basically, there was a third argument that had made the three hardcore conservatives of the court, uh, Rehnquist, uh, Scalia, and Thomas, argued that the Supreme Court had basically just ignored the legislature. They went after the Supreme Court specifically. Uh, the two other conservatives on the court, O'Connor and Kennedy, declined to to stand with them. Uh, they they declined to agree with that. So basically, that just stood on its own. It was it was mostly, I guess you could say, it was opposed by the the liberal four block, but it was it's generally not considered part of it. But I did figure it was worth no. noting. Because the legislature was controlled by Republicans, while the Supreme Court was controlled by Democrats, that was another thing. Here, you had different, you had different parties in charge of things, different change of command that were going through, just a completely messy scenario all around. Um, because uh, again, if, yeah, it also didn't start as a Supreme Court decision. It started as something mm -hmm. that was exclusively within first the uh, Volusia um, and Palm Beach towns, then it went to the straight Supreme Court, and every single time, wait, the person who would become Solicitor General Ted Olson kept filing injunctions in court after court appeal after appeal to try to run out the time because they were thinking that, hey, if there's no validated, uh, like valid response by that um, end date, the legislature gets to pick the electors. Yep. And that's and a big dispute, obviously. Yeah. Was Republican, was Republican. controlled. <laughs> yeah. Like, again, this is part of that back in the day, the, the historical nature of the South at that point was you had you had Democratic statewide officers, you had Democratic courts, you often had Republican legislatures or Republican elected officials. So exactly who was in charge of this whole scenario was really up for grabs. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think now we can kind of look at the last part of the segment before we end. Mm -hmm. uh, basically, I mean, we all know. Uh, the media reformed the way it calls it called races following 2000. Even when Florida wasn't particularly close in 2004, the media was still a bit hesitant. They kind of had those nightmares lingering effects of the last election cycle. And um, overall, what I would ask you guys is what do you think this means for another uncertain election coming up 2020? Just about two and a half weeks from now are going to have voting in 2020. Most of the voting's already been going on. Um, there's the potential for multiple multiple aspects of litigation in response to the potential delay or uncounted or the uh, lack of counting of certain results. How do you think this election is going to play out in 2020? That's my first question for you guys. And then also, do you have any concluding thoughts to wrap up our segment on 2000, which in my opinion is probably the most interesting election campaign of the of the 21st century so far, and one of our most interesting that we're doing in this series. Yeah. So I, I'm not sure if, if I, I'm not sure if I, me or Andrew is older here. I don't have any memory of this election, even though I was I'm, I'm six or uh, six years old at the time. I was born in '94, so I should have a little bit of memory of the whole thing, but I didn't. Um, I was born in '96. Yeah. So in my lifetime, this in my in lifetime, I should have remembered this happened. I, I, I clearly don't have memory of it, which is kind of shocking in hindsight. But my hope is that we do not repeat something like this. I think what has been clear at this point is that. Um, the court, and I would say the the intellectual heirs of Scalia, would hopefully apply the same precedent, which is if there is a recount situation like this, and it's that close to the electoral deadline, um, that we don't get into a situation where we're having recounts at the last minute. I think ultimately the, the safety and the, the sanctity and security of the election should be intact. I don't think at this point uh, the nightmare of it being extremely close is a risk. 
but obviously the number of mail ballots is all going to be contested. You have the potential in Pennsylvania with the naked ballots, which could be the hanging chads of 2020, yeah. um, which is just uh, mm-hmm. uh, unfortunate. You had we had Michigan just to had a ruling today, which is that the ba- the ballots that were that are received after election day, um, basically those are in question whether or not those will be counted or not. Uh, all of this un- unclearness is needs to be resolved before the election rather than after it, in my opinion. Um, and to some degree, I do think you need a court, which is, um, which is an agreement on this. You probably would need a ninth member, but, uh, I'm, I'm not sure that the optics of a, you know, of, of a ninth member voting for the Trump administration would be great. Even if, even if the decision is rooted in, in law. So I'm pessimistic if it gets to that sort of problem that it happens. My hope is that, is that we don't run into this sort of problem again, because I'm not sure our nation can handle this again. Um, this level of partisanship is even more agree with this level of polarization and stress mm-hmm. from the coronavirus. Yeah. Cause I think, I think, you know, you look at that election, the popular vote was off, but the election was close. I think people were willing to forgive at one time because neither candidate got a majority of the vote. Clearly it was a fluky situation. Um, there are a lot of competitive States that were, you know, that were being looked at. So it, it's kind of forgivable in that regard. And of course, California wasn't as close as everyone thought it would be. Uh, it was originally thought of as a marginally competitive state. Turned out to be not competitive at all. Um, so my hope, again, I'll say, is that is that things proceed smoothly and that the court does not need to be involving itself uh, unless something really bad has happened. And I hope that does not happen. And do you have any last thoughts you want to say about 2000, just real quick, and how yeah. it relates to 2020? I will say that I really hope that we don't have courts deciding elections anytime in the future because with Bush v. Gore, people believed that the court was above it all, nonpartisan. Within the last 10 or so years, it has been seen as a partisan instrument. And if they just decide just in a split 5-4-6-3 or whatever decision that, yeah, we're going to stop any recount, we're going to stop, we're going to invalidate all of the mail-in votes because of some reason – and it hands the election to Trump or Biden or the, whoever's running the Green Party, Howie Hawkins. I don't know. That's Mr. just going to be a recipe for disaster. Mm-hmm. And It'd be you, a think that, look. you think that like the protests and whether they be anti-lockdown or the BLM protests got violent or destructive. Imagine a contested election in which like millions of ballots were thrown out. Mm-hmm. That would just it would yeah, be not be good. Like our third episode about 1860, and mm-hmm. unlike and unlike in 2000, where a num- mo- you had justices who had been appointed by Republicans ruling with Democrats, and and justices that had been appointed by Democrats ruling with Republicans. In the case of Justice uh, uh, Souter, um, you know, with with the first part of that ruling, this time I don't think anyone would think that if it's going to be a five four or six three ruling, that you would see Elena Kagan or. Um, you know, or suitor switching votes this time, unless again, it's something very clear, like the equal protection requirement. Mm-hmm. Um, even obviously those two are the ones that are most willing to, to vote with Republicans on most things. Um, mm-hmm. There's lots of, there's lots of room for problems here. And I would really caution um, the court against doing something like that, which would not only invalidate a lot of it standing already, but would lead to question just a, a bunch of things that don't need to be opened. Yeah. And- most of the problems in Bush v. Gore would have been solved if we didn't have that amendment moving the inauguration day up and you just gave people more time. Mm-hmm. 
All right, guys. Well, it's almost time to wrap up here. So briefly, thank you guys for watching our first episode. Before you leave, make sure to look at our schedule. Uh, this is our first season, which goes through mid-November. Uh, we'll be releasing new seasons every every two months. Next week, we're talking about 1980. We'll also be talking about 1860, 1932, 1960, and 1988 uh, in this cycle. So thank you guys again for coming on, and we hope to see you next week. We hope you guys really enjoyed this historical episode. And for our podcast listeners, we hope you enjoyed listening to this episode. Make sure to subscribe to Elections Daily on Apple Podcasts and YouTube, and stay tuned for our November 3rd elections coverage. Thank you and good night.